Hello and welcome to The Blueprint by Ballymore, the podcast that looks at how we can build better cities, speaking to urban innovators from around the world. I'm your host, journalist and broadcaster, Jonathan Openshaw, and in this week's episode, we're looking at the role of arts and culture in building better communities. Now, our shared culture has always been the glue that helps hold people together. Indeed, archaeologists speculate that it wasn't spears, axes and knives that allowed our ancestors to expand around the world, so much as drums, flutes and harps. It was only by gathering around a communal campfire to sing, dance, tell stories and maybe have a fermented drink or two that complex human groups were able to bond and grow. We humans are intensely social animals and culture allows us to fulfil this need. But in our vast 21st century megacities, this social bond can often be hard to find. Indeed, many commentators today have declared that a loneliness epidemic is sweeping the globe, with one recent survey finding that nearly half of Americans always or sometimes feel alone, while in London, 55% of those polled said they suffered from loneliness. The situation has got so bad that in Tokyo, people can rent friends by the hour for a daily social fix. So do we need new forms of cultural campfires in the city to help us combat this growing isolation? And how can the arts help bring people together? In this episode, I'll be putting that question to Tamara Rojo, the Artistic Director of English National Ballet. It is a cultural performance. It's something that it is shared within a community, whether that is to welcome the harvest or that is to try and take away a pest or that is to you know, celebrate uh, birth or death. Um, there's plenty of anthropological examples of a cultural sharing that forges community that have a very strong identity. I'll be talking to London Design Festival founder Sir John Sorrell about what makes the UK's creative industries special. In the UK, we're very fortunate because we have a very, very wide mix. And I often say that if there was an Olympics for the creative industries, Britain would win more gold medals than anybody else because we are so, we're good at sort of everything. And I'll be speaking to Ballymore's creative director, Roger Black, about the importance of breathing cultural life into new communities such as Mill Harbour. You know, I quote the great writer on sort of urbanism and design, Gordon Cullen, and you know, he, he said, you know, people live in houses, but where do the houses live? If the houses are homeless, then all we're left with is typical, endless, featureless suburbia. Look back a century or so, and our cultural institutions were pretty grand affairs, closed away in architecturally intimidating Victorian buildings that look more like Gothic fortresses than a resource for the wider community. This has changed dramatically in the 21st century, however, and one of London's institutions that embodies this best is the English National Ballet, which has recently moved from its traditional home in London's cultural quarter of South Kensington to a new space built out of glass, steel and air on London's city island. The ENB's artistic director, Tamara Rojo, has made it her mission to introduce new audiences to the ballet since she started her directorship in 2012, building vibrant communities around the art form. I started off by asking her why she thinks culture is so important in helping people find human connection. From the beginning of time, around the fire, is the sharing of stories, I think, more important than anything else. And it is the sharing of stories that makes us have a shared reality, a common understanding 
of the world we live in. I mean, it is through uh, verbal communication that we created, you know, the different gods that have come to be. It is only in rather recent history that we've had books about those gods. But before that, it was all about ceremony. Um, and that ceremony is a theatrical performance. I mean, if you look at the Incas, or if you look at the Mayas, or, you know, obviously the Egyptians, there's so many examples where culture is at the very center of what it is to belong to a particular group. And that's because it's a share of one common story. So for you, culture is all about storytelling. Um, and I think it's fair to say your directorship of the um, EMB has been defined by kind of new stories, taking new stories to new communities, um, not least with the recent move to London City Island. How has that moved to a totally new area, not necessarily known as a cultural district? How has that helped you kind of take stories um, to new people and tell new stories in your work? I think... Um, you know, the, the move to the east of London, to our new home in City Island, it wasn't a long time coming in, in, you know, in, in, in the history of our company, but it was a five-year planning. And that meant that we had time to start engaging with our local communities and start asking them what is it that we could do to make a difference and, and what other programs were there so that we didn't come to impose our idea what was right, but actually to reinforce or engage and obviously, it has been a little bit frustrating because we did hit the ground running uh, and then suddenly COVID appeared. <laughs> so we had to slow down and become very digital about it. Um, but we had so many initiatives. I mean, we had the support of the mayor of London with the Good Growth Fund. And that was particularly about bringing neighborhoods together and growing talent. And that's one of the things that I'm very much looking forward that we can really start as soon as we get back to the new normal, which is the skill development projects. We're in creating costume apprenticeships, volunteer professional placements, so that we can share with our local communities all of the variety of professional careers that the creative arts can take, not only on the stage, but actually behind the stage, and that we can be a hub for pro uh, programs about a skill development and professional development for the local communities. So the move to um, City Island was definitely a big one geographically, um, but it's also kind of a big one spiritually, isn't it? I think it's fair to say, you know, moving from the grand old cultural quarter of South Kensington um, to this totally new area. Can you describe the impact that this has had on the way that you operate as an institution? We were in the middle of Kensington and that had its advantages. You know, the fact that you had the Royal College of Music and the Albert Hall and the V&A and the uh, History Museum and all those huge institutions had advantages in terms of being easy to collaborate or to engage with each other. But I think that from the beginning, what we wanted to be was something, like you say, quite different. I mean, the building itself is translucent, and that was very much in purpose. We wanted to take away this mystery or these preconceptions of what ballet is, and we wanted the people of Canning Town to be able to see uh, dancers practicing from the tube station as a normal everyday practice, that it is just another skill and another profession that anyone should be allowed to be welcome into. And that's, that's what we wanted to do, a beacon of light to welcome the local communities, to have a real impact. And I think that the more success stories about this kind of cultural 
grounding of a development project are, the more likely it is that other people developing and other companies creating big developments will engage with a cultural institution to embed this. So you kind of touched on this earlier, but you mentioned that a lot of the plans that you had for this year obviously had to be rethought um, with the global pandemic and that you pivoted quite quickly to digital initiatives. Obviously, dance is such a kind of physical activity. Um, How has digital provided you new opportunities, kind of unforeseen opportunities maybe uh, to build communities in ways that you hadn't seen before? I have to say, as as terrible as the situation has been, it has been amazing, the transformation for us as an institution digitally. The first thing we did was start sharing classes, and those were for all levels. For professionals, I I was teaching from my kitchen in my home, Uh, but then there were classes for people with limited ability or limited movement, and for youth, the youth company also had classes online. So we had four million viewers and participants of our classes throughout these four months. And that had also an amazing impact in our Facebook following, which grew at 10% um, from 27,000 to 230,000 in a few weeks. And our subscriber base also grew enormously. So it's also been uh, fantastic in terms that it has brought some funds, some, some income that we did not expect and we've reached 300,000 pounds from online donations. Um, Because obviously we wanted to share all of this for free. We felt that it was important to continue to engage with the audience, our communities at this time and and give them that, you know, emotional support that the arts can give. But actually it has brought us an amazing support financially as well that we, we, we didn't really expect. And finally, what's your future vision for the ENB then, especially in terms of the kind of communities that you want to engage um, in London? I mean, the vision is always been to bring ballet to the widest audience, wherever they are, whatever their means. That was the original vision. And it's still very much the vision that continues to inspire every artistic decision I make. And that means that when we commission artists to create work, um, the work they do has to be relevant uh, to to the audience uh, of, of today. I think in terms of our local community, I really hope we can become this center of excellence for all. And what I mean by that is that we can be this catalyst for a new wave of professional skill development in the east of London. And that a lot of people, we always talk that there is not enough diversity um, in inside culture or inside the arts. And that's about opening opportunities. And that's what we want to do. We want to open all of these opportunities. If you want to work backstage, if you want to be a producer, if you want to create costumes, if you want to be you know, a stagehand, if you want to be a stage manager, there's so many jobs that um, that need not to, you, to go to university, you know, you just have to engage with us and we will provide you with the skills, with the knowledge and, and hopefully with the first foot into this industry that should be for all. And, and that's what we, we intend to do both on and off the stage. That was English National Ballet's artistic director, Tamara Rojo, sharing her vision for a more inclusive future for the arts. 
Now, culture clearly has a powerful role to play in the community, but one area that the creative industries were overlooked in the past was their collective economic might. Before the global pandemic, it was estimated that the UK's creative industries brought in £111 billion to the economy every year. That's over £13 million an hour. And yet they're often discussed as a cherry on the cake rather than a jewel in the crown. A nice to have, but not as core to our future success as a nation as the so-called hard sectors such as finance or engineering. One man who has made it his life's work to debunk these myths about wishy-washy creativity is Sir John Sorrell, the designer and tireless campaigner who, amongst other things, launched the London Design Festival, the London Design Biennale and the Sorrell Foundation. I started off by asking Sir John about what role design plays in the wider landscape. Well, if you look at the, at the kind of list, the array of, uh, of different but interrelated creative and cultural disciplines, so as well as design, you have film, television, broadcasting, the performing arts, theatre, music, dance, publishing, games, digital. I could go on, name about 35 different things. Design is in all of them. So it's the kind of glue that holds everything together. But I actually believe that all of them are incredibly important. In the UK, we're very fortunate because we have a very, very wide mix. And I often say that if there was an Olympics for the creative industries, Britain would win more gold medals than anybody else because we are so, we're good at sort of everything. So the diversity of the creative industries in the UK are its great strength, obviously. Um, but do you think it's also been a weakness in the past? Um, and by this, I mean, it's sometimes been quite hard for the creative industries to have one united voice um, on a kind of national and international stage. I know this is something that you've been passionately involved in. So do you think that's, you know, the, the, the sheer um, breadth and depth of creative in the UK um, has also been been a challenge? Well, if you look at all the different um industrial sectors you know you've got um you've got things like finance it's an obvious one finance always has a seat at the table when policy is discussed uh, if, uh, if you look at the energy industry exactly the same thing there but of course there's only about seven people you have to talk to in that in that sector uh, in the creative industry sector there's about ten thousand because it's made up of so many small organizations and so sometimes government in particular has got a bit confused because there's lots of different people saying lots of different things that's why i founded the creative industries federation in 2014 it's six years ago now and it was because basically i'd got very frustrated with the fact that the creative industries as a sector wasn't being listened to by government and the reason I was told it wasn't being listened to is because of all these different voices all shouting at once and saying different things. And if you want to try and get government to listen, then they will listen. If you've got good ideas and good thoughts about policy and about what should happen, then you do need one voice. You've got to find a way to get everyone to agree on what the big issues are. And then you go and put those on the table. You think about the money, uh, before the pandemic, it was bringing in over £100 billion a year to the economy. And that is more than life sciences, oil and gas combined. If you put it that way, you realise how big this sector is. In fact, one in eight jobs, it may even be one in six jobs now in London, is in the creative industries. 
If you look at these figures, it is absolutely vital to not just the well-being of the nation, but also to the economy. But I, you know, I care a great deal about the joy that the sector brings. I have to talk about the money because otherwise um, the policymakers don't really listen because they're really very interested in the, the, the financial figures. But if you actually look at the joy that creativity and culture brings to people, that's really what it's all about. It's what makes life worth living for so many people. So you mentioned joy there, and um, we're you know we're talking uh, while the uh, global coronavirus pandemic is still raging, and it strikes me that joy is something that you know everyone could do with a lot more of. Do you think the creative industries play an important community role in times of crisis? Well, the other word I'd use is hope. Um, the you know the, the the thing is that just about everybody I know in the creative industries, whichever area they're in, are people who wake up in the morning excited about the future because they're creative people and they want to create and they want to do things which people enjoy and love. They want to make the world a better place. And it's very, very important right now. And we're, we're having this conversation while the, uh, the COVID pandemic is still raging away around the world. I'm not just talking about the UK when I'm saying this. I'm talking about everywhere in the world. The sector, the creative industries, culture has a big part to play in the way that the world thinks positively about the future, about the fact that we will get out of this problem and things will recover and things will be rebuilt. And you only have to look look back at the times the world has been in great adversity. And of course, people talk about wars. I was born at the end of the Second World War, so I've seen uh, everything taking place since then. And I can tell you that creativity and adversity is an incredibly powerful way of not just thinking about, but dealing with the future. For example, Joseph Bazalgette, who, uh, who designed the sewer system in London when uh, we had the great cholera epidemic. And this was a design response. It actually completely changed London. It completely changed the country. It completely changed the way the world dealt, dealt with this major problem. Designers can do the most extraordinary, rapid and urgent thinking in times of crisis. That's what we're asking them to do. So again, I come back to the word hope. You know, creativity and culture is always about hope. I hope everybody is uh, getting their fair share of it right now. So just in conclusion then, you know, we've been talking about joy, we've been talking about hope. For you, are you optimistic about the future of the creative industries in the UK? Do you see a kind of bright future and do you see them playing a more kind of muscular role in our everyday kind of community life? I'm immensely uh, optimistic for the future of the creative industries. It is the most amazing and wonderful uh, thing. Uh, There's two things I'd say. First of all, we need to be very strong in making sure that we're at the heart of policymaking. That's why the Creative Industries Federation is so important. And we have to have one big voice. That's, again, why it's so important. The second thing everyone needs to realise is that we are part of an international network. We're part of the world. We need to be outward-looking. We need to look at what's going on in other countries. We actually have great relationships all over the world with other countries through 
creativity and culture. It's a wonderful way to have relationships and to maintain and develop those relationships. As long as we do those two things, and then the third word, I've talked about uh, advocacy probably, uh, which is what the industry is about. I also like to talk about adaptation because we also need to keep adapting because you've got to be in front of the game if you want to stay at the top of the league table. That's where we are at the moment. We now need to keep working to make sure that we help. We're at the heart of the recovery in the UK, absolutely the heart of it. And then build back to the levels that we were before and then drive forward to get even bigger and better. That was Sir John Sorrell talking about the key importance culture has to play in the future vibrancy of the UK's economy and communities. Now, Ballymore has long made culture a cornerstone of its developments, whether that's through bringing the English National Ballet to London City Island, commissioning major public artworks from the likes of Sarah Lucas at Embassy Gardens, or through numerous grassroots festivals, events and initiatives, hundreds of which take place across Ballymore developments every year. Indeed, Mill Harbour will have a major new theatre on site, the first of its kind in the area, and drawing parallels between great 20th century integrated developments such as the Barbican. To understand more about the company's commitment to culture, I spoke to Ballymore's creative director, Roger Black, about their work here and began by asking him if there was a secret formula to creating vibrant new communities through culture. You know, the reality is, is that unless it's unless what you do is what you are, you know, hiring in reams of external people to do it for you is never going to be the answer, you're never really going to capture the specialness of the thing. And that also goes for the physicality of a place as well. So there's this kind of idea that if you sort of do X, Y, and Z physically within a place, that somehow you create the specialness that is that social sort of currency that binds us all together as a species. You know, as humans, we need socialization. It's a kind of, it's a core physical need, just like air, water, and so forth. So, you know, creating the physical place is not the answer. Yes, it's very helpful if the physical environment, you know, has a certain set of stuff going on inside of it. But I have to say, I think that that's a mirage, truly a mirage. I could point you to other places where vast sums of money have been spent on, you know, street furniture and plazas and trees and lots of stuff and it's dead. I mean, socially dead. There may be people there, but they're walking around the place like zombies, right? There's no kind of sense of being in, in, that, in, that, in that sort of place. So, you know, you ask the question about the kind of the physicality of the thing. You know, the physicality helps. I, you know, it's always good, you know, the better the canvas, the easier it is to paint, right? Okay. But you don't need that as a kind of the thing that's going to make a place special. You know, what, you know, what Ballymore has done is, is it has invested in some very switched on people who are not property people. You know, we invest in people who kind of feel their way forward socially um, and culturally. And we work with those people to, um, in a sense, like a farmer in a field, grabbing a whole handful of seeds and casting the seeds asunder. And some of those seeds will blossom into little plants, right? 
um, and lesser of those will really become full-blown trees, right? And so what we do is, is we're constantly actively initiating social uh, interventions, events, for want of a better word, with lots of different thematic ideas, with different people, different types of contributions in different settings. And we're constantly doing, you know, we're doing nearly 200 events a year. You know, we're doing more than one a week, you know, two or three a week, right? And, you know, out of that, not all of them blossom and uh, not all of them grow into full-blown trees, but out of those initiatives, we get smaller social clusters and some of those social clusters will die off, but others, they get stronger and stronger and more people get attracted to them and they grow and grow and grow. And so, you know, what you have, you know, in most of our sort of semi-mature developments now is you have, you know, some pretty strong sort of social and cultural groupings which have emerged on the back of sort of these seed events that we do. We're constantly doing them all the time. So there's clearly a huge amount of kind of lip service out there when it comes to creating culture and a lot of kind of whitewashing of developments um, just by, you know, sticking some sculptures around or what have you. What do you think um, when you're looking at how to create a really authentic and deep culture within a community, how, how, how is that done? How can you step beyond the kind of the veneer and make something that's much more lasting? Yeah, so I don't think it's about the physical thing. And actually, I don't think it's about whether you go and get artists, you know, the kind of the rage, oh, get some art, get some artists. And somehow that's culture. That's not culture. That's aesthetics. It's a different thing. It's a different thing. And it's an abuse of the kind of language, English language, to kind of describe that as culture per se. It's not. It's just aesthetics. Culture is the kind of way of describing how social clusters communicate what's the kind of the thing going on within those social clusters um, that's culture uh, and collectively there's a culture of a place where you sort of get a blend of all of these sort of groupings that sort of gives the place a certain vibe or or uh, or tone of voice so if people think nirvana lies in getting artists and arts institutions they would be they would be very wrong you said i i you know i quote the great writer on sort of urbanism uh, and design, Gordon Cullen, and, you know, he he said, you know, quoting him, you know, people live in houses, but where do the houses live? Where do the houses live? You know, if the houses, and let's call them apartments, are homeless, then all we're left with is typical, endless, featureless suburbia. And looking to Mill Harbour now, um, obviously culture has been a massive part of the planning process there. It's got the major new venue on site. There's loads of kind of breakout spaces where um, kind of smaller productions and events and happenings um, can take place. Can you say a bit more about the thinking at Mill Harbour and what role um, culture will play in community creation? We are working to create uh, a strong sense of community that is away from Canoe Wharf. It's kind of yin and yang idea, right? The yin being workplace, the yang being not at your workplace, actually in your home environment. To create a community that feels, feels spiritual, feels intimate, feels special, and is away from where you've just come from. So that when you leave the work, you arrive in another place and you go, ah, I've arrived, okay? And, and that's the kind of the social, a platform that we're working to build. Now we start with, we're seeding the idea with visual stuff, with language, with a particular tone of voice, which is exactly what we did with City Island. We kind of seeded the idea of island, right? Now we now need to start to embark upon the program of activities and events, which start to sort of attract people 
Who would be attracted to our idea of living in a village? So we're not asking people to change. All we're saying is, is this is our idea. If you're interested, well, come and join us. And that's how successful placemaking works. You know, I, I, it all comes back to this kind of notion of this word placemaking. And, you know, it's a kind of a completely devalued term today because it's used all over the place. And in truth, you know, most people are using placemaking as a way of describing a new landscape scheme in a public square. That's not placemaking, you know, or, you know, making a square within the center of a scheme. That's not placemaking either. That's just construction and architecture that doesn't make a place. I think that the, 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 you know, the marker of success of this project will be to change the wider, deeper cultural sentiment towards Canary Wharf as a viable, true place where you really would choose to live. It doesn't have that yet. Doesn't have it yet, right? People choose to live in a building, but not to specifically live in a place, right? And this project is gonna change that. Mark my words. It will change it. That was Ballymore's creative director, Roger Black, forecasting the cultural impact Mill Harbour will have on the wider Canary Wharf area. And that's also all we have time for in this week's deep dive on the impact culture can have on community. We'll be back next week with an episode looking at holistic health in cities and how we can build communities that boost body, mind and soul. If you want to hear more about urban innovation, please do like and subscribe to the podcast on your provider. And of course, we'd love it if you shared the series with your family, friends and colleagues. You can find more details about all of our episodes and about Ballymore's new development at Mill Harbour itself in the show notes that accompany this episode. I've been your host, Jonathan Openshaw, and thanks again for tuning in.